Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. In this episode, I have the opportunity to speak with Moira Edwards. Moira is the president of Ellipsis Partners and focuses on the impact of technology on organizational strategy. She was an associate vice president for the Association of American Medical Colleges, where she led a team of 65 staff in providing sophisticated online services to medical schools and students. Later, as head of business development for the American Nurses Association, she pioneered online learning communities and new continuing education programming using social media and e-learning technology. As the head of Ellipsis Partners, she helps associations and nonprofits make smart technology decisions to create member value and support critical business operations. Hailing from Dublin, she holds a BA in business and economics, an MS in psychology, and is a certified association executive. Moira and I hone in on how technology supports the work of nonprofits and associations. We talk about how to avoid creating a technology infrastructure that is like a Victorian house with staircases to nowhere. Moira explains the three levels of IT infrastructure that leaders need to consider and how an organization typically would apportion its budget to support those three levels. We also talk about how the concept of peacetime and wartime CEOs comes into play as organizations manage the quick shifts forced upon them by the COVID-19 pandemic. Welcome, Moira. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Carol. Sure, sure. So just to get us started, tell, tell folks a little bit about how, um, what drew you into the work that you do, kind of how you, how you got to where you are now. Wow. You know, what, what, what gets scary as we get older, Carol, is like how much this spans decades, right, rather than years. Um, but I have always been an analyst of some sort, like right out of college. Um, my first jobs were about finding problems and digging into them to find sometimes maybe a software solution, sometimes a statistical model as a solution. Actually, the first job I had in the U.S. after I came here from Ireland. I was at the Federal Aviation Administration, and I worked on the land and hold short operations program. So what's fascinating about that is, so if you imagine any airport that has multiple runways, some of them intersect. And the program, land and hold short, was that the larger aircraft would use the entire length of one runway. And the little, small aircraft like Cessnas and things would land on a different runway and hold short of the intersecting runway. And so what I did was I gathered all of the stopping distances for the little tiny aircraft and calculated what length of runway they would need in order to stop and safely land and hold short. I mean, how fascinating is that, right? Um, in terms of like using analysis to solve real world problems. So um, after that, though, I went to work for my first association, and that was providing help desk support to people who were using, members who were using software that the association had actually developed. And, um, you know, during that time, I think is when it became really clear to me that technology is about people, really and truly. You know, um, amen. 
that's for <laughs> right. And that's for for like for our members to get value from the technology that we offered. It had to not just work for them, but it had to work for everyone involved in delivering it. So the developers had to say, yeah, that software works. And the people who offered support and the people who did the training and the people who marketed it, everybody all had to say, yeah, that works well. And so we had this concept of the elegant solution that when we were developing a new iteration of the software, we didn't want it to be like this old Victorian house with staircases to nowhere and lots of like additions cobbled on, that we wanted to be this really elegant, seamless solution that people could use. And so I, th- I think I still do that, right? I still try and help associations and nonprofits make really good decisions about technology and understanding what everybody wants to do, the members, the staff, understanding the systems, fitting it with the organization's goals and their strategies and their capabilities and making sure the technology will work for the future and bringing it all together into a a decision and a solution that everybody goes, yes. You can almost hear the sigh of relief. Everybody goes, yeah, that works. So that's what I do. It's, a bit, it's, it's kind of been an evolution along that path for, as I said, 30 years. And I get to do what I love. I consider myself so fortunate. Well, I love your analogy of the uh, old Victorian house versus kind of the, the modern uh, uh, house with, with the essential elements really there. Because too, I, I find that not just in technology and, uh, you know, the, the technology infrastructure that organizations need to do their work well, but also in, in so many things that nonprofits do, they end up adding, adding, adding. And so they're always, it's like this Victorian house that's had lots of different additions built to it. And no one ever stopped to say, what are we actually going to get rid of and, and stop doing um, before we add something new on? Right. And, you know, and I've had organizations talk to me about those staircases to nowhere where they get in, <laughs> they get into like um, uh, dead ends in the software or in the process. And um, it's very choppy. And I think, you know, that sense of, of bringing it all together and understanding how the technology supports the overall goal. Right. And also keeping up with technology because um, it changes. And if you don't change with it, to some extent, you do get caught and stagnant and kind of trapped by it. So um, it's about recognizing all these cool new things coming out and figuring out how to use them. Yeah. And for uh, I mean, for many organizations, I would guess that some kind of technology um, investment is going to be one of their biggest investments in terms of infrastructure, some of their bigger projects. Um, when, when you're uh, helping leaders think about and move through one of those um, projects, what are some of the key things that they need to keep in mind? Hmm. You know, when we think about kind of how leaders use technology or work with technology, sometimes I think it's really scary for many of those in a leadership position. I mean, in many ways, technology is as essential to achieving their vision as people, as money, right? It's just one of the things you've got to factor in. Um, 
And I think that for many leaders that, you know, they're, they're thinking, I have this vision, I'm, I need to take a risk, and I should, but I don't know how to use technology to do that. So one of the things we do is we try and make this a little easier to understand, right? Um, so we divide technology into three levels. And the, the foundation, the basic level is technology as operations, right? So if you think about, this is all about the stuff. Does do things work? Can I send an email? Can I open a document and work on it? Do I have a laptop? Do I have a secure connection, right? Do I have the basics to run the organization and to do my work? And so that technology's operations is foundational. It's about you know just keeping the lights on. And this, this is where your managed services provider is an absolute godsend because this is very much the foundational operational uh, support that you get from your managed services provider. So to a certain extent, you can outsource that and you don't have to, as a leader, you don't have to pay as much uh, attention to it apart from the security aspects. You just need to make sure your managed services provider. And what's a managed services provider? There are the people who um, might provide your desktop support, who would be your call center. They would probably provide your email solution. They're probably the people who have put your servers out into the cloud. They're the people who really are the crawl under desks and figure out what's going out on under their people, right? Um, and these days, most organizations do not have a server in a closet in the office anymore. They have a managed services provider who's taken over all of that for them. And it's great. And, you know, as Reggie Henry at ASA says, no association or nonprofit should have a server on-premise anymore. It should all be out in the cloud and managed by people who do this for a job, for a living. So you can outsource a lot of technology as operations these days. And the next level, if you're a leader and you're trying to think about, okay, there's that, there's that, that base level. The next level up is technology as service, right? And this level, you're serving your staff. Do they have the software they need to uh, do their jobs in terms and in terms of like running membership and offering events and doing learning. So these would be where your enterprise level systems come in, your AMS, your LMS. And you're also serving your members. Can they come to your website and do what they need to do easily and efficiently? You know, or is everybody doing a workaround? Do your members keep having to call in to get something done? Do your staff keep having to export things to Excel in order to get things done? If that's the case, then your technology as a service is maybe not working so well. But you can kind of conceptualize that. Okay, I'm serving people. And again, this is important to do, and you need to invest money in it um, because this is what makes you um, different to your members. Um, this is why they come to you rather than any other organization. Um, this is how they how they experience it as good service. And but, I want to stop you. You but, used a couple acronyms, and I just want to make sure people know what they are, AMS and LMS. Sure. AMS is an association management system. So that's going to be a membership database. Um, it's also going to be the place perhaps where you um, – 
run your e-commerce, maybe you run your login for your website. So it's a pretty central like ERP enterprise um, relationship uh, platform. Um, and if an organization you know, isn't an association and, and, and what would that typically be called for, uh, you know, a non-association nonprofit? That'd be a customer um, relation management or CRM? Yeah. A CRM, or some kind of donor relation management system, something like that. And, and exactly. who you're yeah. serving as well. So that central right. database exactly. that holds all your essential information about the people you serve, the people you work with. Exactly. That core operational database. Um, you want to get that right. Your LMS is your learning management system. If you're offering any learning to your members, to your constituents, you might have a learning management system. And again, how do they experience your organization? Well, if your LMS is um, smooth, easy to log into, easy to access, easy to see where you are in your learning progress, then they're going to have a, a, a positive experience of your organization. So, but, you know, when we think about leadership, when we think about leadership having a vision moving forward, that really comes into that top level, which is technology is innovation. So if you think about, we've got a, a foundational level of technology's operations, making things work, with a middle level of technology as service, really making things be smooth and, and work well. And then technology as innovation is maybe where we sometimes think about taking risks, right? Because here's where you might develop your own software to offer to members. Here's where you might really use design thinking to figure out what they need and how you can solve their problems. So at this technology as innovation level, you're really thinking about how could you serve your members or your constituents, your donors, your, your grantees in ways that they have not thought you could serve them before. Um, and that's where maybe there's some risk, but it's a, a smaller investment. That perhaps might be a 10% of your IT budget. And it's also where you experiment, where you use maybe agile methodology or fail fast to go out. You um, you try out something new, you get some feedback, and you do a more iterative approach to technology development so that each individual experiment is not a huge risk. Um, and that's how, as a leader, you can think about technology in different ways and decide where to devote maybe your attention, where to devote your budget. Does that make sense? Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, when I, I did some research a couple years ago, just looking at how associations um, were approaching innovation. And uh, I want, um, when at most, it was interesting in that most uh, organizations uh, really saw the field as not very innovative, but saw their own organization as very innovative. And most, uh, one of the three top um, projects that folks mentioned um, that when, when, you know, it's like, well, what, what innovative thing are you doing, you know, now? And most often it was, um, you know, had to do with technology was frequent. And then the other one um, that was another one that was kind of related was frequent was doing some type of, of learning online. And, um, you know, we're, we're recording this in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, um, and a lot of organizations are having to make a quick shift 
um, in terms of how they're working, uh, how they're delivering services. Um, it's, you know, technology is undergirding er- everything that's able to move forward. Um, but, you know, all those assumptions that you talked about in terms of those three tiers are coming into play in terms of, um, you know, if an organization has never had a culture around remote work or, you know, any of those kinds of things or not had the, you know, the technology to support it, um, it makes that shift, you know, particularly hard. I'm observing lots of steep learning curves uh, with people in terms of, you know, different technologies that some of us have been using for a long time, um, but for others are brand new. Um, so what, what would you say, uh, you know, can help organizations as they're kind of confronted with this uh, sudden shift uh, that's, that's happening right now? Well, you know, one thing that, that you and I have talked about is how do you stay strategic? How do you kind of keep yourself focused on the long term when you're surrounded by short term chaos and stress? Um, and I think I think that's a useful lens to, through which to see this because we are so frantic. And I know at times I'm panicked by everything that we're trying to deal with. Um, but I I actually. I'm going to point back to a blog post that was written by a guy called Ben Horowitz in 2014. So it's, um, but HBR, Harvard Business Review, picked it up and talked a bit about it around then. And it's this concept of there being a wartime CEO and a peacetime CEO. And I know separate to whatever however, that's being used in the media right now. At the time, um, what's really useful about this concept is that a peacetime CEO is the transformational leader that we've all come to kind of admire and establish as the norm in leadership thinking, right? We are developing goals, we are you know, creating strategic plans, and we're moving the organization forward in a very thoughtful, collaborative way with lots of emotional intelligence, right? That's your peacetime trans- transformational CEO. But in contrast, um, the wartime CEO is autocratic, decisive, commanding, makes decisions. And in fact, it can often be just the person we need in a time of crisis, right? The idea, though, in this post is that we actually, as leaders, need to be able to move between the two styles, right? So those of us that are running organizations and having to make that transition to a different way of working extremely quickly, we're out there being decisive, Right in the face of all of this movement, our events being cancelled, having to change our revenue projections, having to readjust our budgets. So we're being um, wartime CEOs and managing and responding and getting things done. I think what I would say to anyone in this position is that we need to craft ourselves a little piece of peacetime in the middle of all of that, right? So for me, what that means is spending the time that I used to spend commuting, spending that time sitting with some coffee, watching the morning sunrise, and letting some of this busyness subside, and reading maybe some interesting books, or just journaling out some thoughts about new directions, new ways to take advantage of what's happening, and capitalize on you know, what's changing rather than being overwhelmed by it. So um, I think, you know, putting that little bit of peace in the morning has been very helpful um, 
and turning off the news for that hour as well, so that I'm not tracking the numbers of cases and infections as, as we are every morning. Um, another thing that I'm doing and I'm seeing others doing is carving out some time for learning, both for me and for my staff, because there is travel and that I'm not doing. There are meetings that I'm not going to because of the stay-at-home orders. And so there are gaps of time in my schedule that I did not know were going to be there. And using that time for some, some learning is uh, a way to crack my brain open and keep it open when a part of me is just responding and, and being very, uh, in some ways, reactive during a time of, of, of rapid change. Um, Another thing I'm doing, and or and I'm starting to do, I'll, I'll say, is so I, I'm having a lot more check-ins with people. Like I'm at home, and people I haven't talked to in months. We're suddenly having Zoom calls and phone calls, and people are saying, "How are you? And what are you doing? And how are you coping?" Right. And so, I'm in some ways, we're having the same conversations over and over. But these are great opportunities to to ask interesting questions of all these people. Right. So sometimes I'll say to them, so what has surprised you about the past few weeks like, that you didn't think would happen? Um, or I might say, what has changed in your life that you think will not change back after when this is all over? Or I might say, what do you think the new normal will be like for you, for your organization, for the world? And having those conversations is also another way to kind of keep my brain from just getting stuck in a reactive um, mode and thinking, kind of keeping a vision of the future. And it, it could be a very different future coming up and thinking about how then we can, how are we going to act in that new future, right? Yeah, for me, um, it's been, uh, when, I, when I'm noticing myself um, just kind of getting kind of hyped up, um, where I, where I used to be able to sit and read a book for hours, I haven't been able to do that in the last month. So it's much more, um, tapping into, um, kind of meditative movement. So yoga and walking outside and talking to people while I'm walking outside and, you know, taking bike rides and all the things we're still allowed to do to just keep all of that energy moving and move it through my body. Um, to stay grounded. And, and I love those questions that you're asking. Um, so I'm curious for you, uh, what have you been surprised by in the last couple of weeks? And what do you see as the new normal? You know, I think the thing that has surprised me is that this feels different to my normal way of working from home. Right. Um, and I think the element here is one around choice. And I think that's going to be an interesting conversation for us uh, in the coming weeks and months is around choice. So, first of all, you know, when I work from home, I choose to do it. I, you know, I, and now I'm, I'm somewhat forced. Right. Um, so that's got a very different feel to it. But also what I notice is that when I'm in an office and I have my door open and, and people come and, and talk with me. I have very little choice in that matter. I mean, I, I can maybe close my door if I want, 
no disruptions. I can't keep it closed all the time, right? Um, when I'm on site with organizations and I'm part of the office environment, at first I love it. I love the chance to chat to everyone. And then after a while, I realize that I don't have as much control over my schedule as I do when I'm working from home. And I think in this environment where we're all working remotely, people are going to have a lot more control over their workday because you're going to have to book time in their calendars. And maybe you're going to use a tool like Slack or even a text to send them a quick question, um, but they can answer that from anywhere. So I think we are going to come to expect more and more control and choice about when we work and how we work. And I don't think that's a bad thing because I think one of the things that we find problematic about the workplace is the disruption, whether it's the disruption from the open offices and the noise around you or the disruption of people dropping by or, you know, whatever it is. And I think um, having more control over when I focus and when I'm just available to be disrupted is actually great. I don't think, I think people are going to push back against going into an environment where they can be so easily disrupted. At the same time, one thing that I think people mi- uh, miss uh, from when you're when you're working uh, remotely all the time is that sense of kind of the serendipitous bumping into somebody, having a conversation at the water cooler, you know, walking down the stairs. That you know, the fact that some te- companies have now built common stairs to to force people to actually walk up and down and interact with each other. So I'm curious. Um, you know, what you're seeing in terms of how people are building in some of that as they do remote work and how they might think about it if they haven't yet. So um, I did a session for ASE, the technology conference, many years ago, actually at this stage, maybe six years ago. And it was about managing virtual workers and the remote workforce. And when we did a, a survey of nonprofit folk, and we found that the thing that mitigated uh, the, the drop in creativity was relationships. If the organization found a way to foster relationships, then people found a way to be creative and um, have casual conversations. So, and maybe it doesn't work like when I think about Marissa Meyer bringing everybody back into, excuse me, Yahoo. Um, that's a huge organization. So, so maybe it's harder in larger organizations. But certainly in smaller organizations, there are ways to foster those relationships. Yesterday, I was facilitating an online session, and afterwards, we had a virtual happy hour. And so these are very common during the pandemic now, people gathering on Zoom and having some sort of virtual coffee hour, happy hour, conversational time. It was so powerful. I think it depends how many people are on screen. We had six or seven people at one time, and it was as good a conversation as I have ever had sitting around a table chatting with people. Um, I felt connected. I, uh, some of these people I knew relatively well, others not so well. I felt like I knew everyone on that conversation better afterwards. I would feel much more comfortable now, whether it's picking up a phone, shooting a quick email, um, or you know, using something like Slack to send them a quick question, because I feel like I know them better and I know how they would respond. 
So I think that's the thing to focus on in the long term is building relationships and that comfort with each other so we can have those casual interactions with whatever means there is. Does that make sense? Totally makes sense. I, 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 I'm thinking of a, a parallel situation. Um, I'm a member of a, a congregation and of course our, our uh, services have gone online and um, we've uh, had a virtual or I, I actually don't like the word virtual because it's real. It's just online. Um, online coffee hours through Zoom. And what I've loved about it is that after everyone's in there and, you know, you've got the 50 people or some or even more on screen, they've randomly assigned us into small groups. So I've talked to people that I would never talk to in coffee hour. I've been, you know, I've had the opportunity to, you know, if it's a new person, great, it's easy to go say hello to them. But if that person's been a member for a long time and you've not never gotten around to actually saying hello this is the easy way to actually get to know. So it's been, it's been a great thing and been a wonderful kind of equalizer and, and a community builder. It's been amazing. Absolutely. And my uh, meditation class has gone online. Now that is, that is so lovely to see a screen full of like 40 people on video with their eyes closed because they're meditating. (laughs) That is just, that is supremely vulnerable. It really is. It's lovely. And what's so interesting, I was talking with the teacher and I was telling her what a great job she's doing. And she's like, yeah, I didn't know I would enjoy it so much. She is absolutely able to be present and really talk personally with us, whether it's a group or one-on-one with individual people during the session um, in a way that I didn't think was possible using an online medium. So um, I agree with you completely. Relationships and connection are very possible using technology today. Yeah, I um, have had to immediately move to uh, facilitating a number of long, you know, multi-hour sessions um, from an in-person. That they were they were going to be in in person and and now moving them online. And um, for the one that was going to be a day long, I cut it in half because I just don't believe that you know, you should um, inflict an eight-hour Zoom meeting on anybody. Um, but we had a really, really productive conversations. And uh, the the first group, there were a lot of people who didn't need, know each other well and just taking the time to, you know, we would have done this in person regardless, but taking the time to um, check in and then being able to use the small groups to move them around. And, you know, you're, le- you're, you're really able to do so much with today's technology. So then I uh, want to shift into, um, again, in this, in this environment, uh, a lot of organizations, their first reaction was to cancel all their events. Um, how can, um, as they think a little longer term, like you're saying, kind of keeping that um, while you're reacting, taking a moment to pause and taking that longer view, how might they approach actually moving some of those events online, especially if this goes on longer um, than, than initially anticipated? You know, I think it's a, um, it's a combination of being intentional and experimental, right? So the intentional part is stopping and thinking a bit about what is important about your online event. So we worked with one organization where the most important thing 
funnily enough, were the coffee breaks because their attendees did not get a chance typically to meet. They kind of came from two different fields. And so the sessions were great. They would talk about the meat of the science that they were talking about. But the coffee breaks is where they would have the conversations. It's like these relationships we've been talking about. So when they go online, what's really important to them is a way for people to chat. So, you know, breakout rooms and Zoom are, you know, are ideal for them. Um, so understanding what are the critical things that make your event unique? Why do people come to your event? So having some focus groups, being taking some time to gather requirements from your attendees, your members, your constituents, from your staff, until you understand at least five high-level things about what you want to do that you can then go and look at different platforms and look at you know, whether it's Zoom or maybe you use your learning management system because they have a lot of interesting features, or maybe you go to um, one of the conference capturing sorts of um, platforms. There's lots of different ways that you can do this. Um, and you, you make sure that, that what you're choosing will support those critical needs. And then the experimental side is to really, I think, be open with your members, and maybe you do an actual experiment if you can, to try it out. You know, maybe you think of it as a practice run, but the, the people will really accept what you're doing if you're upfront about the fact that this is an experiment rather than delivering value. So maybe, you know, there might be a, a either no fee or a reduced fee if you can swing it, you know, because if you charge the full amount, people are going to expect the full value. So how can you make this experimental? Can you try a pre-event with one of your committees? You know, it's a real event, but you are um, really planning to, to learn from delivering it. Um, set it by calling it an experiment. You set expectations lower. People give you buy-in because they're, they're willing to contribute to the success of this experiment. Um, I have found that some sort of pilot or experimental phase really helps before you do the full offering. Because don't forget, you, you've gotten really good at doing your in-person events, right? You've had so many chances to perfect that. Um, you have to kind of go back and approach this with a fresh mind. Yeah, and I think you you know you might actually find that through those experiments you you learn some interesting things that you want to keep doing even in the future, or you know um, that there might be all sorts of unexpected um, benefits from from going online. Um, and not to say that you know face to face events won't happen again in the future; they certainly will. But um, I think people are going to be, I guess, one of my kind of what might what might the impact be is to um, might be that that uh, things have to meet a much higher threshold to warrant a face to face event than they than they did um, before this, because people mm. will realize that it is possible to do a lot of what we've traditionally done in face to face events online, and in some ways, there's you know the the pet peeve I've always had with conferences is. Um, you know, yes, the coffee hour is, uh, you, you can figure out how, how can you, how can you um, reiterate that? But I've often questioned, why did I bother getting on a plane 
to go and sit and listen to panels where there was no interaction. If you're not doing anything to, to facilitate um, any kind of experiential learning, and not to say that that's not possible online, it is also with planning. Mm-hmm. But if you're not doing that in your conferences, there's never been a reason for anyone to fly, except for all the extra things that happen in between all the things that you plan. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just, it'll be interesting to see the longer term impacts. That's so interesting because absolutely in a conference, you know, the great things about a conference are you meet people you would not have met otherwise. You form relationships with people or you strengthen relationships because you're sitting, you're eating, you're drinking, you're, you know, having experiences together and you're sharing knowledge and experiences and time with people. And it's, it's in, in many ways, yeah, sorry, when we do kind of um, maybe surveys for our clients and they talk about why do you join, the top reasons are often the information, the resources, the education. So, so there's, people are definitely there for the topic and the speakers, but what makes them come back is the experience. And that experience is from how they felt and who they chatted with on the coffee hour and what that led to when they came back. I think you're absolutely right. And so, you know, with those experiments of trying to do some of this online, I think, you know, being really intentional, as you said, about, um, you know, what are those main things that people are looking for and how might we um, not necessarily replicate? I mean, it's not going to be replicating. It's going to be different. But how do we kind of foster those same or similar experiences um, as people come together? Right, because your online event is not just about putting a speaker or a panel in front of you and, and giving it, it's the interaction afterwards. So the educational session that we had yesterday uh, for AWTC, Association of Women Technology Champions, which is this nonprofit that I'm uh, on the board of, um, we, we had a speaker. We, um, she gave an amazing presentation sharing slides. And then when the slides were over, we, you know, we, we stopped the screen share. So the screen was full of the videos of the participants. And we had a conversation, which was amazing, like a really good question and answer and give and take back and forth. And then you went into a happy hour for anybody who was left, which is even more kind of connective and, and, and uh, informative. So, um you know, it, it, we can we can we can share. We can we can make this technology support that which is important within um, our virtual events. Yeah, and and you know, same as before. The it's always a tool, right? It's a tool to to get other objectives done. So. Yeah. So it's so what I what I heard you saying before was it's so key to figure out what those objectives are, what those requirements are. Um, and, you know, and, and maybe it is, you know, it, it, it provides an opportunity if you're going to be doing this differently to have a different kind of engagement beforehand with members that you might not have had in a long time if you've been doing a similar event right. year after year um, to, to dig into what is it that they really need and, you know, what, what, are, what are they looking for? What do they need now that's different? So, yeah, it provides a huge and- opportunity. Right. And, you know, many of our constituents would have been resistant to some of the online technology. But now they're sitting at home. 
They're using Zoom for, you know, their their work calls, their work meetings. They're using Zoom to have birthday celebrations with their kids and grandkids, right? So suddenly they've realized that this isn't that hard, or maybe the tools have actually come a long way towards not making it hard anymore. And so there's less resistance, I think, that we, are, we will experience in our constituents to going online because they now know what it's like. Yeah, so many people are familiar with the term early adopter, and it's from, um, and I'm forgetting the guy's name, but I'll, I'll put it in the show notes of the, the innovation curve. And part of the innovation curve, there's a, there's a big gap between the early adopters and the early majority. And something like this just pushes a lot of people over that chasm. And suddenly, you know, it goes back to your original thing of, of choice of in, in, in this instant, there's no choice around working from home. Um, you know, if you have that kind of job that that's possible to do working from home. So then to use all these technologies that they may have said, oh, I don't I don't want to learn that or that would never work or I could never facilitate that way or I could never have a meeting that way. It would never be the same. Suddenly it's like, OK, well, right. are you just not going to ever talk to anyone again? <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> we'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Just to, to, we're coming to the end here, and uh, I like to play a little bit of a game at the end. Um, and I have a box of uh, icebreaker questions. So I've chosen three and I, out here, that, and I'm going to ask you one of them. Um, so if you could meet any historical figure, who would you choose and why? Oh, wow. So I will, and I'll tell you that sometimes these icebreaker questions, um, I find them difficult because I need about a second or two to think about them. Um, because a number of images of people have come, come to mind. Um, I would have to say that it would be the Buddha. That would be the historical figure I would love to meet because, um, you know, of all of the the different um, people in history who have changed history, given us great insights, um, I think the Buddha is probably going to be the calmest one, <laughs> right? And, <laughs> and I would, I, I would just like to to um, experience that. I'd just like to be close to that and see what that felt like, right? I, I don't even know that I would necessarily talk to him i would just like to um see what radiates from that just bathe in that calm open presence enlightenment as, as the yes. yeah the enlightenment yes. uh yeah i i uh, did i been doing more meditations recently and did one recently that um talked about you know imagining kind of that that uh, a very calming presence whether it's a a relative or an ancestor or, or, a, you know, spiritual figure. And then at the end being reminded, well, you imagine that. So you have it within you. I thought that was a really interesting way to think about it. That is. 
Yeah, that's really nice. So what are you excited about? What's coming up next for you? Kind of what's emerging in the work that you're doing? Absolutely. See, you know, I was um, sitting here today and I'm looking at my window. And so from the little world that I'm occupying right now, which is my home, one of the things I'm excited about are the the leaves coming on the trees, right? And the days getting longer because... um, you know, in this world of we're just kind of uh, in some in some ways we are in place, we're stuck in place. It's lovely to look out the window and see spring and growth and life continue. And so that makes me very happy and kind of excited for the rest of the year. Um, from a work perspective, there are some experiments we want to try within Ellipsis Partners. Um As we look at the world and we're trying to keep ourselves open about how to do things differently in this in this changed environment, we're looking to try some experiments to connect people together to share knowledge because I really see that working. So that's a little exciting. Um, We're figuring out what that will look like and creating new ideas is always fun. Um, and I mentioned AWTC, Association Women Technology Champions. I am so excited by that group. It's um, it's a group that formed out of some of us that just met on a regular basis to talk about technology and life. Um, so I'm one of the founders. But now we have expanded that, and we want to bring the knowledge, the connection, the the insights to a greater group of, of, of women who are working to promote and advance technology in their nonprofit organization. So we just became officially incorporated. We're going to file now for our 501c3 status. Congratulations. And that's so exciting. We will have now the, the, the foundation to, you know, that the, the paperwork, the, the credentials to actually offer more education, more uh, connection, more ability to advance women in the technology community. And um, that's very exciting. Awesome. Well, how can people find out more about you and, and get in touch? Sure. Um, so my, the nonprofit that I talked about, AWTC, our website is awtc.tech. Um, we use a, kind of a cool .tech ending. Um, so I'd love people to check that out. For us, for Ellipsis Partners, uh, our website is ellipsispartners.com, E-L-L-I-P-S-I-S, partners.com. And since I'm Moira Edwards, my email is Edwards at ellipsispartners.com and uh, would welcome uh, a connection with any of your listeners. It'd be lovely to chat further about anything we talked today. All right. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming on. It was, I, I just enjoyed our conversation. I did too. Thanks, Carol. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. That's missionimpactpodcast, all one word, dot com slash show notes. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out.